Really, I just emailed you out of the blue. This could be the worst interview of your life, and you can just be like, I, I regret it already. No, no, anytime I see my reflection on, on, the, on the computer, it's good. Oh, cool. <laughs> so then you're already in a good mood for this one. I'm John Mejias in New York City. And this is Zach Smith in Los Angeles. This is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... Oh, God, that's so morbid. But I would always go back to that page. And today we're talking with Trenton Doyle Hancock about... I didn't even know what I was looking at. That's coming from someone who, for three years, saw every aspect of this thing being made. So you were born, right? That apparently happened. Do you know where? Oklahoma City. All right. So you were born, and your parents were in Oklahoma City. Were they, uh, were they Oklahoma people their whole lives? My father was. My mother is a Texas person. Did you grow up in Oklahoma? I grew up in Paris, Texas. My mother moved me back down to, uh, to Paris, and that's where I was raised. So, like me, you were a single mom household? For a little bit, and then my mom remarried, and I was raised by my stepfather. A minister. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you listen to him ministering? I did, yeah. Because <laughs> there there's a sort of booming voice in some of your work. A booming, effusive um, mm -hmm. voice, which I, could, I can see being related to that kind of speech that you would hear if you were hearing it every week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, was, I grew up in it. I was like marinated in that language and in that kind of lifestyle. And, you know, a lot of my family are missionaries and, and ministers. So I was expected in a way to become that myself and went a totally different direction. Not totally different because I kind of see what I'm doing is ministering in a way my own special religion. This, this is really similar to Gary Panter who grew up with a lot of religion and is also from Texas. Exactly, exactly. I, I think there's um, a lot of artists that, that come out of uh, Northeast Texas specifically that were raised very similarly and I always tell people if you're from here you are you know from that area of the world you're going to get bombarded with Christianity and with the church stuff so you have, you have to find your way either against it or go with it yeah I've fallen in league with a lot of artists that kind of had have had to figure out their own way through that stuff as a child, was that like the major influence in your house? Are there other things that, that you also associate with your childhood? Is that most of it, or is there other things that strike you in now as, as interesting? I mean, I was a self-motivated kid, and I knew what I liked. So if I saw something that was interesting, I sort of gravitated to it and, and, and then researched the hell out of it. So what so, were some things you researched as a child? Comics, toys. I, I researched those things as well. Yeah. <laughs> horror films. Yeah. It was, it was getting your hands on horror movies difficult? I mean, you would have been in the VHS era, am I right? Correct. So, or was that just not a thing that your parents cared about? They're just like, do what you want. Well, I think, uh, like a lot of kids, I was half raised by the television. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when mom and dad were out working or doing what they were doing, and when they came off a hard day's work, they really didn't want to be bothered with the kids, so they kind of left us to, to be raised by the television to an extent. And they're just, they happen to be so much great 
I mean, movies coming on the on the TV, especially around the holiday time. I mean, you were, you were getting tons of horror films around October for sure. So, what were what were some of the big horror films for you? Well, I mean, I, I saw. Let's see, The Shining. Uh, I think that one of the like the most potent memories I have is watching Friday the Thirteenth on HBO when I was. It must have been around 1981 or something like that. Hmm. And that last scene where, man, I won't spoil it for anyone, but... uh, (laughs) Is that the one with the convertible? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, with the convertible. They're in a convertible in the last scene, and then the top closes, and it turns out to be striped like Freddy Krueger's sweater. Did I say Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street? (laughs) You said Friday the 13th, and I said Nightmare on Elm Street, so I'm an idiot. I'm no, sorry. don't. You were you were right, and I was wrong. Don't worry about it. That that scene freaked me out too. <laughs> oh, <no>. good. <laughs> I forgot the last scene of Friday the Thirteenth, though. No, there's someone comes up out of the water there at the end, and uh, it really freaked my world out right there. Yeah. How old were you? Were you like a teenager, or are you like still a kid when you're watching these? I was like six. Yeah, six or seven. Oh wow! Wow. So I I, I knew I was addicted to that stuff, probably at age. four. Three or four when my mom took me to see Jaws in the theater. Your mom took you to see Jaws when you were four. Yeah, I saw Jaws 2 in the theater, but I think it was a double feature, so I got to see both of them. So your parents were not traditional ministry. (laughs) (laughs) No, they were great at child rearing, but, you know, the 70s. A lot of stuff hadn't been tested yet. A lot of what... We get out of this talking about artists about their parents. Sometimes bad parenting is the best parenting. (laughs) Yeah, you're fine. Right? I mean, it turned out. You're walking and talking. What what, what comics were you into as a kid? Let's see. The first comic I... Oh, Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man. Web of Spider-Man? Wow, the West Coast Avengers. (laughs) Web of was kind of boring. I don't know. I didn't really deal with that one as much. He could shoot the, the web out of the back of his hand and that. That really bothered me. <laughs> I thought the continuity was tight in all of those. They were all the same, but maybe Web of was the first place they... I think it was the drawing. Like, I, I really... If the drawing was good, that's where I went. I remember Spectacular. It was oh it was the ones with Cloak and Dagger in them, I think. That's the one I made into the cartoon, which was, which was a great cartoon. Had a good song. From this, you started drawing. You started having a sketchbook. We used a lot of sketchbooks as a kid, keeping up with that kind of thing. I always had drawings on me. And before I knew there was a such thing as sketchbooks, I just had, like, bags of drawings. Oh, that's funny. Um, my grandmother used to give me brown paper bags to draw on. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. Any, any paper, any surface I could get my hands on. Um, I'll tell you what I really loved was women's pantyhose back in the day like my mom would buy these pantyhose and discard the the packaging but they always came with this insert and it was it was glossy on one side and matte on the other and okay i, I love collecting those little inserts and then drawing them did you paint on the did you draw on the glossy or the or the matte side because i can imagine you could paint on the glossy side and draw on the matte side i tried drawing on that glossy side but it just was like a uphill battle i um resigned myself to that other side that's funny i'm picturing you collecting these now i like to get the the eggs the legs eggs yeah the haynes eggs but uh i could never make art out of them i just had the eggs and i was like now the 
stormtroopers are attacking a giant egg. See, that's so funny. I was about to say, yeah, you could put Star Wars figures in those eggs. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> we're, not all neighbors, we're all neighbors. Yeah. Just in different parts of the world as kids. Yeah. We would have had fun had we moved a little closer. So, uh, Trenton, when did you... Thing and you can write, what's your age this year? What's your favorite food? And um, I still have it around somewhere. And age three, um, in my little handwriting, I specifically, when it asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a painter. Like, very specific. Not an artist, but a painter. Wow. What did you think a painter was or did at that time? Like, when you thought of a painter, the earliest conception, what, what paintings do you think of? I have no idea what I was thinking at that. My, I think my earliest memory of learning about painting must have been when we got our Encyclopedia Britannica. I would get the S and I would get the P. And the S was awesome because it had all the snakes in it. And the P had, had the history of painting in it. And I would just go through it. I just loved it. We had a world book and my puppy ate A through N. Shoot him right up. So maybe that's how I got to be a painter too. I don't know. Do you remember any of those paintings sticking out? Like Titian or like, you know, was it Rembrandt or was it de Kooning? Or do you remember any anything at all about the impression that we, what was in the Britannica at the time? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. There was a Sacco and Vandetti um, funeral painting. Oh, yeah. By Ben Sean. Right. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that always freaked me out. Um, I'm like, oh, God, that's so morbid. But I would always go back to that page, and I would kind of dog ear it. So if I was feeling like really scared that day, I could just skip over that page. Let's see, what's another one? Any of the Dali stuff was, I was fascinated by. There was a Bechtel painting that was photorealist of a guy standing next to his car in like, I don't know, somewhere in California. And I would keep going back and forth and it'd say, oh, it says it's a painting. But it looks like a photograph. It just used to freak me out. Especially reproduced the way the Britannica did. Probably mm -hmm. all the photos in there look kind of like vegetable paintings. <laughs> yeah, they kind of all, all did. Just flatten them all right out. That's an interesting array because like, some artists instantly connect to the tradition of painting when they're young. Like they see the style of painting that was prevalent until like the 1800s. The styles. Mm -hmm. And they immediately mm -hmm. connect to that. And some artists don't. Like, they immediately filter that out into a different... Like, as children, that's a, an old mm -hmm. image. Right. All, all the pictures you're describing, I feel like, are new in that way. Like, they they spring away from the main line of sort of soft light, brownish realism. Sure. And Right, right. But that's not to say that those other things were... I think I studied every image and gave it equal weight. And I just had this respect for authority back then that was probably, I don't know how healthy it was. I, I was like, well, if it's printed in here, that means this must be good art. That was how I looked at it. So I gave every painting equal weight. So, you know, there was like a Homer painting of some like a guy on a raft and there's like sharks coming at him. I remember that one standing out. Well, I mean, sharks, jaws, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> And the guy in the boat was a black guy, so I'm like, maybe that's me. I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, a cautionary painting there. Don't go in a boat. And I ha I don't do that now. I can't swim. I don't get on boats and screw all of that water stuff. It's all Winslow. <laughs> Winslow Homer had no idea what he was doing to you. 
It affected me in more ways than one. So you eventually got to middle school to high school. Did anything anything change at that point? The things that changed was I just became more and more myself. And, you know, I was a really good student. I was a good student in elementary school. And by the time middle school came around, the Nintendo had hit America. And we were one of the first households in our town, actually, to get one. And my God, my grades just went right down the toilet right then. (laughs) But my interest in pop culture had been funneled into this machine. Like, so everything I loved about horror movies, toys, comics, everything seemed to be located there on this machine. So I think at that point I knew this is sort of what I want to do with my life. I thought maybe I wanted to be a video game designer for a little while, but I just loved how intricate some of the games were, especially the supporting material. Like for Legend of Zelda, you got maps. I was just about to mention Legend of Zelda. I think this isn't the first time we talked about Zelda with an artist. (laughs) It's come up. It has come up, yeah. Mm. An interesting thing about that era of the video games was like anything you were into, like the Terminator or Predator or Gummy Bears, there would be a video game about it, and mm-hmm. it would be very disappointing on some level, like because it would not be at all like the thing that you were into. Like it wouldn't look like Spider Man, but at the same time, it was the Spider Man video game, and so you're like, "This is great! Yeah. I'm Spider Man!" Yeah. <laughs> totally. It all came down to this idea of gameplay, you know, kind of like. Connect Four or any board games, like, what was it fun to actually interact with? And I think these these games, at first it was a visual thing. It's like, wow, this looks cool. But then uh, we were conditioned by Atari. So this was like the next thing up. So anything that looked better than what you had on Atari looked amazing. It didn't matter if it looked like Spider-Man in the comics. It was like, well, look, it's more than a dot. You know, with yeah. yeah, there's a few levels up. They've really screwed up these days because now it looks exactly like Spider-Man, and then the next one does too, and people are like, this game, eh. Yeah, be careful what you ask for. I remember saying to my brother, I mean, we were just all about, like, what's the next generation of gaming going to be? And now that it's, we kind of have everything we were asking for, it's like, uh, but these games all suck. I mean, maybe I'm just an old fogey, but I can't get into any of the new stuff. Like, I, I have my Nintendo, my... Well, Star- they're, they're very serious, the new games. Like, I don't want to be a Navy SEAL and, like, have all this equipment, and it's just so serious. No, nah, I exactly. mean, there's, there's, a, there's a pretty big... There's a pretty, good, there? pretty big indie game scene where they basically, you know, they're into the, the goofiness. Like and the, yeah, well, I mean, it's part of it is retro gaming, and part of it is just, like, the new games that you're talking about are, like, made by giant studios. And then there's like smaller studios that make games that are kind of more retro aesthetics, but also just goofier, different, like different formats, you know, because mm-hmm. I think we're all kind of thinking like when you think of modern game, you think of a first person shooter, you know, like there, there's a bunch of other stuff that's alive and well. It, it isn't the, the top line, most advertised thing. So it's kind of harder to see unless you mm-hmm. know people who work in that business, which... Well, that's good to hear. In L.A., I do. And mm. they're all teaching at the same schools as art teachers now. So, mm. so that's interesting. In the story of, of Trenton Doyle Hancock, we understand where the video games fall. And that's what's important here. <laughs> you were getting bad grades in high school, but you were going to go to art school anyway, so it didn't matter. Was that your plan? I don't think I knew there was an art school. I didn't think too far ahead, like more than maybe a month. But everything fell into place. I did end up at art school. In a way, by default, 
Did you like it? I loved it. Uh, yeah, I felt like I found my people once I, you know, hit the ground running uh, at a collegiate level. High school was kind of horrible, but college was awesome. So Peter Saul wasn't at Texas A and M. No. Was, were there any like artists that were kind of well known who were there teaching, or was it just like you had some good people who were? They they were really great professors, but they weren't like super well known. I mean, there was Mike Miller, um, a guy named Lee Baxter Davis who happened to have taught Gary Panther and George Andine and a lot of... Neat. Yeah. Did you decide on the three-name thing from him? Mm, no, I think it was more Jean-Michel Basquiat okay. that made me think that. I briefly considered Zach Z. Smith, and then my <laughs> gallery was like, that's stupid. Just say Zach Smith. And I was like, all right. Yeah, I, I remember the day that my gallery, they are like, well... We're, we're going to have the vinyl guy come in and do the thing for your show. So what do you want your name to He's say? He's going to do the vinyl letters that you stick on the gallery window so people know. Yeah. yeah, on the window thing. I remember that having to be a decision. And I was like, well, that's the name I was born with. I'm going to go with the, the longer version. Yeah, I feel good about that. Good job on that. <laughs> you sound kind of like a founding father. <laughs> I'm glad I have your approval. Totally. So you got a name. You went to art school. Art school was pretty good. And you went to grad school at Tyler, is that right? That's correct. Was that different, or was that the same, or was it good? It was the same in the sense that there was tons of amazing professors, but very different in the sense that uh, what they were offering, a lot of it was just stuff I had no idea that there was a conversation. Like, I studied under Stanley Whitney, the um, abstractionist, and I, I don't think I'd ever met a black guy who was a, a painter that was that serious. So he really... Um, became kind of a father figure hmm. for me while I was there. Donna Nelson, who's an amazing painter. She's so unpredictable. That's something that I valued in what she did. Were you kind of on the path to the paintings that you became known for, or were you doing other kind of work at this time? I, I was definitely on the path. I mean, before I had got into grad school, I was already, I had already invented a lot of the key components of the mythology mm -hmm. and uh, was doing performances based on the characters and, yeah, everything that you see now was then, but just in a more skeletal format. So did the, the students around you and the teachers and stuff, did they understand the mythology as a narrative, or did they just take your word for it that these were characters that, like, how legible was it to the people who knew you well, who were close to it? Well, it wasn't 100% legible to me, so I couldn't entirely communicate that to people back then, but... I knew that I, I liked the idea of creating these characters and putting them in situations, but they weren't all connected yet. So like kind of every painting was in a way like starting over again. It wasn't until after graduate school, and I, I mean immediately afterwards, like a month after, that I had the idea to plug everybody into the same story. So the idea that they were all part of the same universe was, I guess, my way to make sense out of everything I had been doing up until then. Can, can we do a quick review of your, of your world, of your story? Can you take us through it? Sure. So I, I invented Torpedo Boy when I was like 10 years old. So here he is. For those of you at home, we're looking at a real stuffy of Torpedo Boy, a real action figure. Hey, look at that. <laughs> so I made a bunch of those. Oh, yeah. Nice. Can he shoot torpedoes, or he just, that's a name? When I came up with that name, I, just, I think 
torpedo was the fastest thing I could think of as a kid. Okay. And I was really slow, so I wanted something to be the opposite of me. So it's like this tor- torpedo boy. That that's that's perfect, and it just it just stuck. So I think it's kind of funny that I couldn't swim. I still can't. And torpedoes are meant to be in the water. I don't know. Kind of makes <laughs> makes some kind of ironic sense, I guess. So you kept torpedo boy in your art all this time. Yeah, he he's gone through hibernations here and there, but. When I was an undergraduate, that's when I revived him, and he stayed alive after that point. The mounds came came about my last year of undergrad, and, and then they stuck with me. And uh, the vegans came about in graduate school. Of course, they became sort of the bad guys or the misguided guys in the work. Yeah, after that, I realized, oh, Okay, I'm a storyteller. This narrative thing is just part of what I do. I didn't feel as bad about just starting to create more characters and more characters and just piling them on uh, and kind of having my own version of the Marvel Universe, which more than reading the comics, the Marvel comics as a kid, I love looking at the Marvel Universes and just reading through the character profiles. That was actually more exciting. Oh, the comic series, the Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah, yeah, The official, for those of you at home who don't know, there's an official handbook to the Marvel Universe, which were these comics. Well, I mean, you can describe them, Trenton. I should have ones handy, uh, but I couldn't. (laughs) Well, nobody can see this, so it's a podcast, so even if you did. Oh, oh, okay. See, I don't, I mean, I don't know how this works. I'm just impressed that that you would have it within arm's reach of you. (laughs) Yes. This thing that I'm holding up that you can't see, it's an encyclopedia of all of the characters that were made up until a certain point in time in the Mar- in the Marvel company or whatever. And it, it even chronicles if the character is dead or alive or if they were ever married and, of course, what their superpowers are and what the extent of the powers are. They made them in the 80s for the yeah. first time, and they were mm-hmm. written from an in-universe style. I suppose it's kind of like the bottom half of a Wikipedia page that nowadays, but there would be original art in there of each character by different artists. That was an important thing because it was, for many people who were young at that time, the first time you saw juxtaposed very different artists all at once. I remember Bill Sienkiewicz sticking out every time he did an entry. Mm -hmm and Steve Rude, a couple other people, Walt Simonson. Every time I saw him in there, you'd be like, oh, that looks different, you know? Right. But they they existed separately from just the comics, which had the stories in them, and so they were a different kind of thing. And, and pre-internet, yeah. they were kind of important. Right, it's kind of this one-stop shop of learning or whatever. Yeah, and Joe Rubenstein, he happened to have inked a lot of, the, of those early ones. When I did my Trenton Doyle handbook, which is an homage to the Marvel Universe books, I got him to ink the cover of my book. Oh my God, that's so nice. Wow. Mm-hmm. Me and Zach, this is a big deal. It was a thing that had not, the like of which did not exist before. Mm-hmm. It worked well in a lot of artists' imaginations, or people who would become artists, because they right. hadn't seen a thing quite like that. And it abstract, I mean, by the by the 80s, those comics had become complicated enough that you needed an encyclopedia to keep track of them. And it was sort of the first 
expression of something that now on the internet is sort of common, which is like the <laughs> the Wikipedia, Wikipedia fan rabbit mm-hmm. hole, but it didn't exist back then. Yeah, I think the combination of, um, you know, TSR and all of their properties, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, the Thriller music video, which, uh, and the, the, or the, I was, should say the making of Thriller, which I guess technically is the first behind the scenes video to be released. I think mm-hmm. I remember reading that. Oh. Now you can't have a DVD or a film and not have extra material on it. No one's going to buy it, or not as many people anyway. Sure. Yeah, Thriller was uh, was also something that at the time, seeing the video was like a some kids had seen it and some hadn't, and it was like a secret knowledge. Yeah, it was legendary. You know, in my household, there was this sort of superstition that you see the video and you're going to be possessed. <laughs> Did it turn out like, to be true? I think so. I mean, I am screwed up not well. <laughs> a lot of artists, there's stuff where they're, you know, they're really caught up in their head. Some of it, like, I, I really get annoyed by it, but with you, I'm like, wow, he's really caught up in his head, and I want more. <laughs> I want to hear more about this. And it's really funny to hear really serious artists and curators talk about the mounds. I was watching, like, YouTube videos about you last night where uh-huh. the mounds and that, like, it's just really funny to me. Right. <laughs> and every time I come up with new terminology, it sounds absurd to me, and I'm like, dude, you can't, you can't say that to people. That's ridiculous. And then after, like, a few months of it and after it becomes more official and it's in print i'm like oh yeah it's like i've been saying that my whole life so it even takes me a while to to get used to the language but i guess that's part of the fun for me is to like well just how crazy can this thing get right in the fine art context people can assume something that is kind of satirical Mm -hmm. there's a assumption that something can be kind of absurd but it's interesting how, like, in comics themselves, you'll have people with really ridiculous names, and then we just get used to them because you see them over and over, like Wonder Woman or Guy Gardner. Yeah, yeah. In comics and, you know, in the handbook, for instance, the narratives are explicit, and so the narrative itself that links these characters together to their scenes is a piece of art that the the reader can participate in, but in your art and the art of other artists who are kind of creating narratives and then kind of freezing scenes in almost biblical sense, there's not a text which makes explicit the underlying or an underlying narrative. So that's a choice to do it that way instead of the normal way. Do you feel like there's something gained by that something or a freedom that you get out of that? Since I understand both of those ways of working and in the beginning, of the of my career, you know, I kind of made the transition from cartoonist because I did cartoons for all the schools I've ever been to. So I was the cartoonist for all the college papers and stuff like that and thought I would graduate and become, you know, a cartoonist, uh, like a, a satirical cartoonist with like strips and stuff. And it was doing the painting at the same time. So I thought, well, if, if this painting thing doesn't work out, I can always build my portfolio as a, as a cartoonist and go that direction. Turned out that the painting opportunities started to open up more and more. And it was around that time that I really thought how I want to approach my career is to create a whole world where people walk into a space and they are confronted with this combination of painting and basically satirical cartoons. 
along with that comes text. And when we think of comics, we can't divorce the textual information from the, the other, you know, iconography. And it's all just this one new hybrid of symbols. So that's the way I was approaching the, the gallery situation was, you know, behind the scenes, I'm going to keep creating all of the, the material I need to put into this more familiar format that people, you know, people understand reading this image to this image to this image. And sometimes there's a punchline, sometimes there's not. To just create this sort of thing that was familiar. From there, to take license. And it could be more painting-y, or it could be more explicit in terms of narrative. But to never fall into that category of, well, it has to be one or it has to be the other. To really explore the fullness of that whole you know, gray area. I wonder if the idea is like, you're not so much putting someone in a story or giving them a story as you are giving them the sense of being the way you would in the handbook in the middle of the story. And so the words and the, and the narrative are more about giving the person the impression that a child has if you play a video game or you see the, the, you know, the eighth episode of a cartoon for the first time or you pick up a comic book that's at number 263 where you simply feel as though you are in the middle of a narrative, that's the main thing, not the arc of the narrative? Mm -hmm. That is true. And I think if someone just happens to want to dig deeper, then they can, and they can discover what that arc is. They can go to the beginning, you know, watch the pilot episode, and then go all the way to the end if they want to. So how would somebody do that? If somebody wanted to see the whole story, are they, would they... Would they be looking at your work chronologically, or is there like a guide? Well, I did the Mia Mound book, but this was years ago, and that was t in 2005 or 2006. Uh, I worked with Picture Box uh, Press with Dan Nadel, and we put together an anthology yeah. or a chronology of all um, up until that point. And I guess I'm due to do another one of those types of things here pretty soon that maybe has the whole breadth of, of what's been going on and beyond. And I'm actually about to start on a proper graphic novel that just strings it all along uh, on a timeline where you know you can follow that story. But in my head, it's very clear. I, I, I know who begat who and what stories branched off from where and how they're relevant to other parts of the, of the narrative. Like it all makes sense to me, but I think it's at a critical mass now where I have to to approach it more like so you, there's a very specific story in your mind and then we see glimpses of it and you can see some of it in that book but the rest of it is still in your head yeah it exists in different places online like all of the, all every story that i've written probably exists as a press release or something somewhere that right. you can actually go find but um yeah it's it at this point it's my job to put it all together and it's a job I'm quite excited about to do. Yeah, I mean, it's cool to have like a, a backlog of things you've been thinking about that are just ready to come out. Because then mm -hmm. you're not improvising right off the top. You're, you've just got something all ready to go that you can sort of let out. Right, yeah. So at this point, it's, it's, a, it's a management issue, just managing all the information and plugging it into sort of a, a database of my own creating, I guess. You did a ballet as well. Did that intertwine in the story of the characters? It, it did. Uh, the ballet was 
about a specific time in vegan history where there was um, a good vegan named Sesame. They they came to me and I was like, I, I've never been to a ballet. I don't know anything about it. But so there was this one adventurous choreographer, Stephen Mills, who wanted to do this thing. And uh, I thought, yeah, let's let's go for it. So that was a three year process of I mean, we brought on a, um, a composer and we had designers and all kinds of folks on board for that. So it was sort of maybe the equivalent of making a, a film, a small film. When was that? Like in relation, so how long ago was that? Um, we started the process in 2005 and, and, the, and it debuted in 2008. And then um, it went into hibernation for about five years and then we, we resurrected it in 2013. So it's back on the shelves in the closet, but um, hopefully yeah, we can get that back out and show it preferably travel it to maybe either of the coasts or internationally. I think it'd be well-received. What was it like seeing people? I mean, I assume that the characters to you are, they're normal in a certain sense. They're your art supplies, but when they are made into people who are dancing and sets, you sit in the audience and you get to see your audience maybe see the level of conceptualization and the level of sort of seriousness behind those characters, like the level of how much they're thought out and they're not just a, a temporary sort of thing to hold a painting together. Just seeing the yeah. audience react to that, what was that like? It was it was really amazing, and but really strange. So when it debuted, they performed it like 13 times, of which I saw maybe 10 or 11 of those performances from different vantage points. Um, you know, sitting in the crowd and then going backstage and seeing it in the wings that way just gave me a different understanding of what the craft of ballet or dance was all about. But um, there were three distinct crowds that came to see the shows. There was the art crowd that I brought in, you know, like New York art world types. Then there were the people that followed the composer, Graham Reynolds, like he had quite a following. So they just came to hear the music and then they're like, well, what? I don't know what these visuals are, but this music is awesome. And then, of course, there were the people that were hardcore ballet people that were, you know, subscribers. They go to every show. So they were there for maybe a more total experience. But it was different reactions from different crowds. Were they into it, the, the ballet people? Yeah, they, they were, um, especially since it's it's more of an experimental or modern dance company. Yeah. Uh, so something that was yeah a little bit more off kilter like this, they were they were used to. As long as they could get something down the road that was a little bit more classical, then they were all about you know having this thing that was maybe for for the season it would be the one crazy show or something like the that. The costumes in that are really remarkable. Did you work with a costume designer on that? There was an in-house designer. My my wife at the time, she's she designed these dolls of all of the vegans. So Sesame and all of his eight disciples. We already had patterns for the for these dolls. So we we worked uh, with this costume designer, and she just kind of scaled them up and made them so that they could fit over a human being. So was your your wife sort of the assistant designer or conceptual designer? Yeah, I think that's how we might have credited her at the time. But yeah, she, she was a big part of um, helping out with the whole visual landscape. The morphology of the creatures in terms of their shapes, 
is very related to your paintings, but they definitely do not go the route of just reproducing your mark. You know, they it is a distinctively different looking thing. I know like David Hockney's opera stuff, a lot of times it looks like a David Hockney drawing literally come to life because it's mm-hmm. it's done on these flat sheets and there are these lines there over everything. Whereas in this one, they've kind of tried to literally imagine a real world surreal version of the more abstract universe that your mm-hmm. paintings create. Right, because I think it was more story-driven than it was if the visuals tended to get in the way of the story moving, then we had to pull back. And that was, yeah, the months of just sitting in the in the writer's room with these guys. So it was a true collaboration. Everyone sort of was like, well, if we do this, then we're going to sacrifice this. And all stuff I would never have thought of because I sit by myself in studio and I make paintings and I don't have to answer to anyone. That sounds like it could have been very fun because you are looking at your own material in a completely different way. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew immensely from the experience. I mean, when they when they pulled the curtain back and the show was finally on, it was it was surreal in the sense that I didn't even know what I was looking at. And it's and that's coming from someone who's for three years, saw every aspect of this thing being made. From the visuals, I heard everything Graham sent me, like music, I approved everything. Uh, I was at dance rehearsals, so I feel like I had a pretty good grasp on the piece. But the thing about theater or dance or whatever is until that lighting is right, until everything is synced together, you haven't seen the piece. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and I, I was like, what is this? This is really weird and I don't know if it's moving. Like I didn't feel any authorship over it. I truly was just a spectator like anyone else and I was just like waiting till the end of it to see whether it was going to be good or not. And um, it wasn't until maybe three viewings that I kind of settled into the, the idea that, oh my God, this is really kind of interesting. This is really good. But those first few uh, showing, but like I don't know what I just saw. <laughs> what is this? It sounds um, kind of like a like a like an indirect process, like like old photography or printmaking, where you you do a bunch of steps to make the thing, and then you press a button on a machine or do something or crank something, and then mm-hmm. you peel it away, and then the machine has done something to your image. Mm-hmm. So you did a lot of work, but there's this step in between that transforms it, and then you. You know you had a hand in it, but it's something else. Totally. Perhaps I had been, I'd gotten used to that or it, because, you know, I, I studied as a printmaker. I mean, that was my, I majored in drawing and printmaking as an undergraduate and spent a lot of my life in print shops. So that, that whole indirect thing makes a lot of sense. I'm really addicted to it. And I've been doing similar things on a larger scale after the ballet. I was like, well, how can I do this again? Not necessarily work with choreographer but how can i have this experience making part of it and then part of it is a sort of magic box yeah kind of out of my hands i mean in a way it's like the way a a comic book artist or video game designer works in that they make something and then a few years down the line 
if it does well, someone else is hired to work on it, you know, and so then they write a script, you know, and they make a movie out of it, a cartoon, or, you know, so they've made something else out of it, but to you, it's like... I, I, I kind of, I really like that idea. I mean, another thing I've, I'm really into is animation. I think of my favorite animations, I think of Ren and Stimpy. I don't know how many dozens of people were involved in the making of that. I just read a book that was about the the early days of Nickelodeon and, you know, that kind of renaissance of cartoons that were going on and they focused on Ren and Stimpy. And uh, there was just so many names I had never heard of, but the way they were talking about them, so these were key players. This, like that scene that I love so much wasn't John Chris Falusi, whose name was on the whole thing. It was like all of these other people that were underneath and they helped actually make the emotional identity of the, of the show. I guess the same can be said for film or music or it's like uh, when I think about Quentin Tarantino, it's his editor that actually made his films look like his films, like Sally Manka. Mm -hmm. Like, and now she's gone and his movies don't look like Tarantino movies anymore. And I think we saw our last Tarantino film with uh, Inglorious Bastards, probably. At least the Sally Manka Tarantino feel, like the way time and sound and everything operates. I'm gonna really miss it, but yeah, after the ballet, it really forced me to think about how collaborative some of the best art in the world has actually been. It's not just these alone geniuses. Especially with things which have continuing narratives, like mm -hmm. the, the kind of an extended heroic narrative where, I mean, I don't know how it, you conceptualize it, but most of the stories, the kinds of stories you've been talking about are not three-act stories where the, mm -hmm. the conception of the character is tied with the resolution of that plot. Like Hamlet, the character, is tied to the plot of Hamlet, the story. Whereas right. Captain Kirk can have adventures forever because Captain Kirk isn't about the resolution of Captain Kirk's story. Like Captain mm -hmm. Kirk is about a certain style of solving problems. And so you just watch that get played out over and over. And like superheroes and video game characters are about that. There's like a certain style of handling trouble that each one has. And you can just keep playing that out with different variables, right. you know. I think we're living in a time where now, even if something is meant to be insular in the way, say that Hamlet is, if it becomes popular and people like it, they'll figure out a way to switch it and make it live forever that way so people can milk it. Yeah. I do want to talk about the physicality of the paintings. If we go back to the autobiography, the biographical thread, you were in, you were at Tyler. Did you start showing quickly after that or were you working or have a day job? <laughs> my, my story is so atypical. I, when students ask me, you know, how I started, how I got, it's like, uh, well, I started showing in undergrad, hmm. you know, and I got my first review in Art in America right out of undergrad. And so by the time I got to grad school, I was this yeah weird guy that had a review in Art in America somehow. But I intentionally was like, yeah, forget about all of that. I'm just a schmuck. And I really tried to unlearn everything I had learned up until that point. And those professors kicked my ass and I loved it. And uh, But I came out much stronger on the other side. And then by the time I was out of grad school i had a gallery in new york and was in the biennial like my last semester how old were you when you were in the biennial let's see that was in 2000 so i was 26 how did you get your undergrad show 
a professor, well, let's see, there was a curator in, in Dallas, in the Dallas area, who um, was looking to put together a show of new artists or artists that hadn't shown a lot or emerging artists. And she reached out to one of my professors and she's like, well, are there any professors there that we could show? And he, and he was like, no, but I have a student that might fit what you're looking for. So uh, I drove up to Dallas. Actually, my good friend who was in school with me, Robin O'Neill, who's another. We uh, interviewed her. Oh, did you did you work with Robin there? Yeah, That's like cool. two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, did, <laughs> well, yeah. Robin was the one that drove me up to Dallas. We put the work in her trunk, and then we went on up uh, and showed them the work. She she still shows with with these same people. Yeah, it's a it's a small world, really. So. You did that. You did grad school, and then you did you you did the biennial in two thousand. So mm-hmm. I think you beat Robin to the biennial. <laughs> yeah, race to the biennial. It was a <laughs> the foot race, but yeah. yeah. So you're showing. You actually worked in a wide variety of media, even though a lot of it is all tied to sort of a surreal expressionist line. You've got pure drawings, and then you've got paintings, and you've got these very black and white things and other prints in there and your modern like have you been doing mm-hmm. print series and then you got ones where you're messing with the canvas so are these things that you kind of cycle through and you're kind of doing all of them at once or did you kind of go each show is its own aesthetic or were there phases i always say that if you took the explicit narrative stuff out of my work i'm just a, a formalist and i mean first and foremost i i love shapes and lines and how things fit together and so i see my my project as this cloud that moves forward and it takes a little bit of what was before it and tries to pre-anticipate whatever is after it and all of that stuff works together and just keeps moving but it can be kind of inbred where i'm just going back into my own history and saying oh i forgot about that let me try that right now but it's not something that i'm ever planning but then there's this whole other layer of the work, which is the narrative. And so that's these things that I'm on a conscious level saying, well, I want this character and this character to do, to do this. And then maybe the way that that plays itself out visually has more to do with this intuitive place that I'm at. I'm like, well, well right now I'm working with etching and who knows, found objects or something. So I'll put those two things together and that will help narrow down how I spell out what's this other level of information that keeps it fresh for me because I'm always pulling from different sources and pulling from my own history. Uh, I can never anticipate where I'm going to be, but I do know that it's probably everything is going to be tethered back to the mound and the mound verse as I call it. But I just like experimenting or otherwise I just get completely bored. When you are working on a piece, do you start sketching and throwing materials at it before you have an idea of what subject is going to go with what materials? Or do you conceive of those two things first and then start creating the piece? Pieces can happen in so many. They can begin uh, in a sketchbook or they can begin with a pile of material that I say, okay, here's what I have to work with. Make something out of that material. Uh, usually it's a combination of things where I'll start something with just, and I don't know where it's going and then I'll 
notice something that I can start to articulate and then it, it starts to get more and more specific in terms of, well, what, what is this thing? I know how it is, but what is this thing? So the narrative starts to develop out of what the materials are doing as you throw them at the surface? Exactly. So it's, it, it's this kind of balance in between me saying what it is and me listening to the painting and how it wants to be. And so it's just this constant um, balancing trick, really. It seems kind of almost musical, like you start to develop a certain rhythm, rhythm yeah. on the canvas and then uh, on the paper, and then you're like, well, what kind of words go with the emotion that that's generating? And then the, the, the narrative, the mound verses, seems like it would be almost the last thing that gets layered on. Like, and, Yeah, in a lot of cases it is. And if there's a lot of being in the painting, like a stoner, like just it's like, oh, I'm just making marks and I'm in there. Right. And then there's, I'll run to the back of the room and stay there for an hour just watching what's happening. You know, what's the big picture? What's the macro and micro? And then, you know running back and forth, but that idea of rhythm is very important. I'm, I am a drummer. Um, I have the drum, the kit is in the studio. I usually play for an hour to warm up in the, in the studio before I do anything. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you know, I was, like I said, raised in the church. My mother was the, um, the choir director. So she played, you know, piano and organ. I sang in the choir, played drums and my whole family, they do that. Um, that's sort of, one of their main things. So I was raised in music. So that idea of, you know, composition on that level is at some point, and I was probably in high school is when I made the connection that these, those two things were actually the same. Well, I think that it also explains the way words work in your paintings because they don't behave the way text in a comic book does in that they don't, the image says one thing and the text says something else and together they say a third thing. It almost seems like the words are a kind of other mark making that float out on top of the imagery as part of an overall that goes together like words and music. There's a mood that is created by the paintings and drawing that supports the words and gives them a certain emotional direction. Yeah, it's. I think it's then becomes my job is the the composer or whatever is like, well, do I want the words to have an ironic relationship to the image? Do I want them to reinforce, you know, what the image is? What do I want that to be? Also, visually, how do I want the words to stand out or do I want them to blend in or start to become the thing that they're describing or what, what do I want them to be? So I think I like to explore a range of what text, you know, in a concrete poetry kind of way. They're, they operate that way, but then they, in, in places, they lapse into that typical comic book description where it's a word bubble coming out of someone's mouth and it's saying something. But just to, it, are there captions that are very clear that, okay, I'm meant to read the image and then go down and read that caption. But it all kind of is under the umbrella of poet, some kind of poetry. Are there poets or writers that you think of a lot Burroughs, not so much the, uh, not Tarzan, but... Uh, yeah, William uh, yeah. Burroughs. William Burroughs. I mean, the, your use of scientific language or pseudoscientific language seems to kind of echo Burroughs sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think more for me it was the idea of the subconscious dreamscape 
you know, where things tend to fall apart. But talking to someone about dreams just yesterday and I was like, you know, we can't dream about anything we've never seen. It, those, it's just a way for, you know, your brain is, is taking all of these parts of stuff that you already own. Your eyes have already laid claim on these things. And it's just sometimes random, sometimes not so random, putting that stuff together to create this uh, a new hybrid situation. I, I think about the beats, you know, beat poets and you know stuff like that. But not, unlike Robin, I'm not a huge reader. Like, I'm sure she was wowing you guys with some of the references she could come up with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, film is more my... I take in thing, like, things visually at a rate that is... Maybe superhuman. I don't know. So for Burroughs, there was his there was a surrealism, and it, but it was pegged back to uh, the experience of being gay and being a junkie, um, and also so a bunch of political ideas for him. In comics, there's constantly the effort to sort of stay in touch with some idea of youth culture, so that they can, you know, once in a while talk about something that teenagers are supposed to care about, like drugs or dating or whatever mm. what for you are the connections of the the mound verse to things that or if there are any to things that you feel are a real world e is it sort of an just so jungian that it doesn't need to do that or doesn't matter well i'm of the mind that anyone making anything is like it's going to be connected somehow to it's a way for them to equal out what's happening in their real world into this escaped place, into this fantasy place. But for me, again, I think I see the connections on a one-to-one -one level of things that are going on in the world. And sometimes the work happens right before the stuff happens, almost like a, like a premonition. And then other times it's me trying to make sense of things that have just happened uh, in a reactionary way. So they're very direct. Can you give it like an example? Well, I will say that um, the mounds themselves, the black and white striped creatures, were from my investigation of uh, the prison, industrial prison complex. And this was back when I was an undergrad. And someone, instead of me just living my life as, I'm just an artist, someone said, no, you're a black artist. And that stuck. And I'd never given it any thought. Did you like that accusation? Did you hate it? Did you, were you annoyed by it? I just thought it was a thing. I'm like, oh. That's, I'd never given it that much thought because mm. I was just going about my routine make, making things. But I was like, oh, the way I'm perceived outside of myself is a thing. And I don't think I'd given any thought to that. You like know? you're not walking around, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I, I know this, um, but I have a, a certain idea of what I think blackness is. And then mm -hmm. it, it was an important time because I had to step back and go, oh, everyone else has their own idea of what that is, and then even more specifically of who I am and how I match with their conception or misconception of what blackness is, and that it was all a construct. And I think through the things I was looking at at the time, I was like, oh, thinking about stereotypes, and that's the stripes kept coming up, prison stripes or coon stripes or zebra all of these things that are were kind of negative connotations, I just thought it was interesting. But then also the idea that I myself felt that I was living in two worlds. 
there were the things that I inherited that I thought were black things and the things that I was born into like that were white things that I was expected to learn in order to navigate through an American landscape. So having to look at both of those things, I was like, I'm, I'm, I got a foot in both of those worlds. Um, and I feel like I'm an owner of all of those things. So the mound became central. It wasn't a mound back then. It was just these little striped characters that were kind of prison characters that I was making. But they morphed into what the mound became. And the mound represents so much stuff. It represents everything I just said, but also its stability um, because they're rooted in the earth and they don't get up. They're not mobile. So they're kind of these databases, if you will, um, like a brain, but they also sort of represent the idea that I collect. I mean, I just, everywhere I go, it's like pig pen and how that dust cloud follows him. Objecthood tends to follow me. I'm, like if you could see the room I'm in, which uh, I could turn this around and you could see. Oh, wow. We're looking at lots of toys. Yeah. Lots, lots of plastic goodness, everybody. This is just one of my little studios that I'm in and, and it was empty at one point, and then a month later, it was filled with stuff. But it's all research. I always collect things because I'm absorbing it, and I, hopefully one day it'll come out in the paintings, sometimes when I don't know it's coming out. And that's really always exciting. But the mounds are that. They're this receptacle. And I guess my invented ideology is that we are all mounds and we are all receptacles for the things that go into our you know sensory holes and they get deposited and inside yeah. and, and used it's, i think it's a very serious way to live and I'm, I'm in the process of writing like a manifesto on it i mean it'd be like buckminster fuller and you know geodesia or something but it's no this is a thing and it's a way to live live your life yeah i mean i think the thing about the mounds visually is they're painted so that they can hardly ever do anything. So like, th like they're flat at the base and they're, they're a mound, you know, they look like a mountain or a hill. Mm -hmm. And then they've got like a distinctive, like you'll change them around. So they have different heads at the top of this sort of striped body, mm -hmm. but they are primarily affected by things they kind of remind me of like baron harkonnen in, mm -hmm. in dune um and so they're figures not of the the environment changes and the way they are rendered changes but they themselves are record not of the active voice but of the passive voice you know mm -hmm. of things that have been done to them the idea of of taking these people that basically they're not doing that much, but then rendering them in many different ways is kind of what the media does to people in their everyday life. You know, like mm -hmm. daily life is like you get up and you put on your deodorant and you brush your teeth and you, you do a series of things which aren't really doing all that much, but then they can be rendered a million different ways. They can be sort of like made into a sitcom or they can be made dramatic or they can there's something about dramatizing our own lives in different ways to give them more, mm. more action than they really have. And the way that the mounds are always kind of dramatized in a weird way. But I don't know. There's something there about the shape on the page 
which undermines mm-hmm. the the mound its individuality in a certain sense something about the connection between the form of them making a statement right. in itself right i think there's a, a sort of an assertion of like a thumbprint of some sort that they also become that form will it'll always be there and it'll always be unchanging but at the same time it's not unchanging um i was saying to my studio assistant the other day that all the paintings that i'm making for this show that i'm currently doing have a map they always have something right in the middle of the canvas like there's this um like it may be torpedo boy it may be a tree it may be an actual mound or it could be some other form or it could be a coagulation of all types of forms but things tend to be absorbed right there toward the middle of the canvas so even if i'm trying to get away from that form that is the stripes with the pink and the head at the top there's a sort of vortex i think for me like when i'm standing in front of a painting and it becomes this almost bilateral mirror of myself that things get sucked into yeah mound isn't so stable that it's not as an idea especially like you were saying visually uh, it can only be represented in this one way where it's flat at the bottom and it just sort of sits there and is immobile you know, that's more narrative information like that's Well, that's how these characters work. But in their minds, they can go many, many different places. So the way the rest of the canvas becomes generally affected and breaks apart and becomes stable or does all kinds of uh, crazy things with material, that represents maybe the rest of that moundscape where they're trying to communicate. But even so... I try not to pin, I think that's where what happens in my paintings is so different than anything I would try to put down in this graphic novel. In fact, that's the major conundrum I'm having right now is to where do I hit the ground running if I want there to be a beginning and end to this? Because the paintings operate as a space that confuses all of that. You know, it's, it's a place where I can go and I'm not illustrating text but I'm creating something open-ended that really can live forever without me having to be there to, to explain it. The way your paintings are composed and the way the mar- way marks work on them is uh, like, like in an old iconic Virgin Mary painting, like a medieval one or, or a, you know, there's the Virgin and the baby, and then there's mm-hmm. just this gold leaf and borders and other things which elaborate around it as mm-hmm. if it is a concentration of of meditative energy on the on the center kind of like a mandala mm-hmm. and then that kind of space you see it again like in de Kooning, there's the simple image of the woman in the middle and then the uh, the expressionistic paint just sort of accumulates around this central idea those are not narratives they're meditations on one idea that sort of echo out from the center to what could it be this time? And I feel like a lot of your more like larger pieces, there's a central idea and then the other mark making echoes out, which is at odds with the sort of more narrative asymmetrical space that you would have in a book where something goes mm-hmm. from left to right and in order to show motion and action, you've got to freeze. You don't have a timeless 
icon that echoes out, you have a, a frozen moment that needs to show beginning and middle and end. Right. But that's, for me, it's just, that's just one way to do it. I tend to do it a lot, but that doesn't exclude that I could maybe approach a painting that is just kind of a, a comic book where you are reading it from top to, you know, left to right. And I don't know. I think I tend to like to have different entry points for work for my shows. And again, it's just to keep myself interested and to know that, I come at my own material from many different vantage points, and I think the work deserves to have a different entry points as well. Were you looking at Philip Gustin a lot? Yeah, Gustin was sort of a, a hero of mine, still is. I think my relationship to him has changed over the years, but he's always a constant. I mean, the way he would take those Klansmen and sort of abstract them and sort of increase or decrease the amount of narrative that they that that shape had mm -hmm. uh is is somehow reflected you know when he had his retrospective i the guy the curator called me to do the walkthrough for the gustin show this was i don't know 10 12 years ago it gave me a chance to just really concentrate on his the bookend of his life and and, and figure out how he got from one space to the next. And what I discovered was, you know, he started out like, you know, WPA painter, you know, describing these sometimes very sweet images, sometimes apocalyptic images, but always some socially connected. Yeah. And trying to affect people to think beyond uh, their situation. Um, and I think that just got old for him. And then he went into this, I don't want to call it a hibernation because he was still quite active with the, the abstractions and he was really good at it. But I think the, the most interesting thing about the abstract period is that moment when he started to transition out and into the clan work, you start to see that it's almost like the abstractions were icing on a cake. I mean, literally they looked like icing the way he was building the surfaces. But at some point they started to form into these blocks, you know, these crystallized blocks of information. And you could start to see those clanmen and those shoes and everything right there in those transitional moments. And it's almost as if everything from the beginning of his career had to go through this transmogrification in order to get to the other side to have even more mobility. And so like what you're saying where it could be these varying degrees of description for the clansmen, I'm like, yeah, if he hadn't have gone through that whole middle period, you know, we wouldn't have got that late Gustin that was just so amazing and so mobile, really. I'm seeing some of the, um, a lot of German expressionism in there, like Otto Dix or George Gross. Were those guys influences as well? Of course, yeah. Uh, I think Otto Dix was one of the first of the German expressionists that I was looking at. And I remember getting a book of his when I was in my early 20s. And what I loved looking at with him was the timeline, like what he was making at what age. And, um, you know, he was a very dark guy from the beginning. You know, right. And once World War One was over, he's like, everything's fucked. Yeah, everything <laughs> really, really screwed up. But his self-portraits told the whole story for me. Like looking at those, these amazing portraits of this teenager or whatever he was, early 20s. And then he was kind of doing portraits every year. I started looking at those and seeing, well, oh, this is 
he's doing these, but he's also doing this these other investigations. He didn't believe in style so much. It's just like whatever fits for the particular quote-unquote assignment or whatever it was, he, he went that direction. And so he had an incredible amount of freedom, I felt, but it was always tethered back to these portraits. I started to really think about my career in, in terms of a timeline and that I want each year to be marked by these portraits. So I do a ton of them myself, and I think it started with him, but also the idea that just do whatever you want to do and <laughs> don't ask permission. Right. It's kind of fun and to see you all of a sudden, like you've got a little piece of animation, and then you've got a sculpture, and then you've got a ballet, and, but it's all you. Mm-hmm. It's, really, it's really fun to see. It's yeah. more of a compliment than a question. <laughs> Martin Kippenberger was another artist that I was looking at. A lot of German German artists. I'm moving to Germany in, in January. Uh, I'll be in Berlin for six months. Oh. Yeah, at the American Academy. I love it there. Me too. Yeah, I'm excited. It'll be my first time, actually, in my pantheon of, of great, great artists. There's so many German artists, so to go to the, <laughs> to the motherland and drink the water. Is, is so you're going for six months and then you're going to move back to Texas afterwards? Uh, the plan is to get over there and have that concentrated time to, to start the graphic novel and to really kind of have a, a blank slate in order to think about that and how I really want to approach it. In terms of comics, I mean, you were reading comics as a kid, but I mean, a- as an adult, what are the comics that continue to reverberate for you? Are you Kirby guy, or are you into like R. Crumb? You know, I didn't start to respect Kirby until later in in, in life. I mean, in my twenties at some point, but sure. um, I was like, man, this guy's like the Picasso of, of of comics. I mean, it was just so amazing what how he I don't know he had a very particular vision, but uh, a comic that let me know that comics could be greater than just pulp kid stuff was um, Havoc Wolverine uh, Meltdown. Oh, yeah. I worshipped that comic. And, and that must have been in the ninth, eighth or ninth grade uh, when I first got that book. That was a very interesting comic because it was Kent Williams and John J. Muth, and it was all painted, but they... It was Havoc and Wolverine, and if you don't know, those are two different X-Men characters. Each artist painted only one character, so everything Wolverine did was painted by Kent Williams, and everything that um, that Havoc did was painted by John J. Muth, which made it a really interesting blend. I've seen it also referenced, I can remember there was a, a graffiti, a street artist compilation where somebody else was, was singling out that book as being a, a really important influence. It's like a well, Cold War spy thriller, kind of. But he does go crazy. <laughs> There's a great panel where he just goes, death, death, death. Yeah. <laughs> I think about that all the time, even now. <laughs> My favorite panel was when he grabs the guy's head from behind and, and then releases his um, uh, spoons through the guy's face. Right. He's The guy has glass. It's like a little weedy Russian demolitions guy, and he's 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 on the phone, and he's got these... He's got these circular Trotsky glasses. Yeah. And you just see Wolverine's claws come through come through his eye sockets from behind, pushing the glasses out. And It's great. I, I met Kent Williams at a Comic-Con a few years back, and I was so nervous. I was just shaking. I'm sure he's like, why is this giant black man like standing in front of me shaking? This is weird. 
same thing happened to me. I, I was like, I met him because he's, you know, he's in Hollywood. So I met him in, at Meltdown Comics a couple times. And he's like, oh, I like your paintings, man. And I'm like, <laughs> that's great. That's like how we went from Otto Dix to Wolverine. How many times have we done this on this, this show, though? Honest <laughs> to God, like, if you wanted to write like a real history of art and you were going to do the zeros and the teens, you'd have to talk about the number of people who... The popular imagery of the 80s, that comic book stuff, and then also expressionism, either like Nazi-era expressionism, that mm-hmm. combination has been potent for a, a lot of people that we've talked to. And I feel like it, it's a point at which it, it would be hard to ignore it. It's a little bit frustrating for me because I think that the art world doesn't have the tools to really talk about both of those things at once you know which is uh it's a little frustrating because to the artists it seems pretty clear yeah no i i i express that frustration often even with people that get what i do you know they're but they're in firmly planted in the art world um i'll bring up those other references and just crickets you know but it's also like i've shown my art dealer some of those artists and he'll you know like they kind of get it but they also there's a sort of it's like once you once you go to that that genre path mm-hmm. you're in a certain economic world and they have to respect the rules of that world. Mm-hmm. It's like you can talk discursively about Otto Dix and you can bring to him any modern idea you like because he's in the pantheon of of modern artists. But you couldn't take mm-hmm. that same discursive conversation and take it to you know Kirby or Kent Williams because you would be then all these people who have collections would have to reevaluate their art collection, you know? Right. Just from a maker's point of view that those, like you were saying, these different worlds have these different rules economically. Sometimes it's the first thing people see. Like if I'm doing an animation and I have, I don't know, 700 pieces of typing paper that I've drawn on. Well, those are all drawings, but that's like, what is that going to do to my drawing market where I make X amount of drawings a year? And then all of a sudden, there's this influx of 700 of them. Yeah, I mean, they're used to this economy where if you put something on paper and you sign it and then you sell it, then that's a piece, even if it's a very, like, there's not much on the paper because there's obviously mm-hmm. a tradition of, of a minimalist drawing in, in, in contemporary art. But if you are, if you're doing sketches that are literally just sketches or, like, selling a sketchbook is strange because you're like, why did I decide that these... 300 drawings that are all bound together are worth about the cost of seven other drawings that I would cut out and put on the wall, put pins through, you know? Exactly. (laughs) If comic book pages were suddenly worth the same as the drawings that of the artists that they inspired, then Kirby's estate would be the most expensive artist estate in history. Probably, (laughs) probably outstripping Picasso, you know? And I don't think anybody can handle that economy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Therefore, yeah, that valve of the art world, they, they're very tight with how that opens, I suppose. I'm wondering, like, one day we should do one where, like, just to sort of bleed it all out, we'll just get, like, all the kids who are sort of the same age on the podcast at once and just do, like, one big comics art podcast, you know? Right, yeah, the round table. It's it's come up so much. It is It is hard for me as a painter to say in any kind of con- convincing and honest way that like Peter Blake or Vermeer have literally taught me that much more 
than the comic book artists that I like. You know, they're on a par, and I look at them on the same day. You talk about the use of color, and I just think, oh, Barry Windsor Smith, you know, that's how you use color. And I think it is a subject in itself. I think right now, the things I'm most excited about are are toy design, you know, and I showed you, just showed you guys my, this is one of my toy rooms. I actually have a toy museum behind my house, and I have a warehouse that's full. Um, I'm going to build an actual toy museum that's more of a resource for myself and for friends to come over and check out. Oh, wow. Ooh. See you next summer. Invited myself over. Right now I'm working on some actual toy toys that would be sold more at like a Toy Tokyo or um, mm-hmm. a vinyl, you know, kind of place. Yeah, I'm totally looking into this just I get so much inspiration and especially right now my focus is on the specific proportions and color and fonts and, and things that are that are in my toy museum. Looking forward to reflecting all of that in the work somehow. If you get interested enough in some medium that's outside of what you normally do, the first impulse I always have is I think, oh, I got to up my game. You know, like I may be real <laughs> good at drawing this, but, you know, I don't know anything about like how to, I mean, as a, you've done some sculpture, but uh, do you feel like it's a whole nother challenge it is and uh, this is more of a thing where even where my hand is in the work is is in varying degrees some things i've touched other things i have other sculptors that come on that make the molds and things yeah just figuring out where i am in the process uh, i think a major part of it for me at this point is wanting to make a very dead-on homage to the things that I love. Like, this mound is an homage to kind of Garbage Pail Kid, uh, My Pet Monster era. So it kind of reminds right. me of a mad ball. Yeah, right. totally. So those were all the things I was looking at when I was going into production with this guy. So the Trenton Doyle Handbook was all about you know, being an homage to the Marvel Universe book. So it had to be dead-on. So there is this part of me that is a fanboy that just wants to be part of these other worlds that I feel like are have equal influence than uh, to the painting world or whatever. Interesting. I'm glad we, we managed to cover that. We <laughs> see some toys. Well, Trim. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Bye. Right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Trenton Doyle Hancock's latest work in the Black Pulp Exhibition at the International Print Center in New York. That started this month and it goes through December 3rd. He'll also be in the Juxtapose X Superflat Exhibition at the Vancouver Art Gallery starting November 5th and going through February 5th of 2017. Also, I have more of my artwork in my Tumblr at the pen. Or just Google John Mahias. And Zach has a new book with Chana Maivo. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Weed Art is sponsored by No One. Yeah. And is produced by Papin and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer and engineer editor, and engineer and editor is just an Asher. What the hell, man? Now there's less 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 reverb. <laughs>